This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. So today on the program, we'll talk to Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He's known for the work he does with cold-blooded creatures here in Mississippi, including 30 different species of salamander. And you may have even seen Tom and other salamander enthusiasts carrying salamanders across the Natchez Trace as the Bucket Brigade. So today we'll get an update on these small but mighty creatures found around the state. And as always, we want to hear about your wildlife experiences or if you have a pet question. To join our conversation, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it now repeats Saturday mornings at 6. We'll spend some time throughout the hour with Tom, but to the top of the show, want to talk to Dr. Major just a bit. Uh, good morning, Dr. Major. How are things going at the clinic? It's kind of noisy right now, but things are going well. Uh, it's always a little bit noisier in the morning. You may hear some dogs barking, uh, different things going on. But, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good day. We, I think the animals sense that the weather has kind of cooled off, and they, they're feeling good, most of them. So as we get into cooler weather, always uh, good to remind folks uh, some things to keep in mind maybe about the changing weather as it uh, uh, relates to our pets. Absolutely. And uh, right now we're probably into a a great time of the year. We never know what's going on. We still have hurricane season until mid-November. But uh, things are pretty good right now. There's a flourish of mosquitoes uh, because of all the rain that we've had. So be sure to be aware, and uh, definitely, if you haven't had your dog on heartworm preventive, you need to keep them on that. As you know, mosquitoes spread heartworm from dog to dog and can certainly be a serious problem. Uh, And, you know, fleas and ticks, they had not gone away yet, and they won't go away really here in Mississippi. So these are things that you need to take care of. As far as getting colder, you know, we don't really anticipate what much cold weather until February, January, February. Mm-hmm. So I think the animals, especially those that are outside a lot, will enjoy the, the days just like you and I will. And a good uh, reminder when we talk about uh, mosquitoes, if you want to keep down the mosquito population in your area, go around your yard, make sure that you don't have anything uh, that's got that standing water in it because we know that's where uh, uh, mosquitoes breed. So uh, just find out if there's uh, maybe something that you've left in the yard. You know, police your yard, make sure there's no standing water in there. That's for sure. That will certainly help things out. Got a couple of emails here for you, Dr. Major. This first one says, I recently adopted a shelter dog. He's been doing amazing on his leash, except... When we get to busy intersections, he decides to turn around and bite his leash and engage in a game of tug of war. He won't stop even when I tell him to. I'm worried that he'll bite through the leash and either he or I will end up in traffic. What could be causing the behavior and how possibly can it be corrected? You know, certainly it sounds like this is a behavioral problem based on possibly past history. 
Uh, it sounds like the dog does well so you get to the intersection and then has some, what, phobia possibly about either going into the street. I'm not sure why. I guess when you stop, uh, the dog seems to what bite and chew on his leash. It might be good to have a leash that has at least partial uh, metal or chain where, you, where the dog can't eat through that. Uh, I would suggest that maybe going to intersections that are not busy and working and practicing with the dog may have some positive effect as far as this, this behavior is concerned. Um, would it help to start playing tug-of-war with him with something other than the leash, maybe during playtime, get something that they could you know, do the tug-of-war with? Would the dog kind of understand the difference between we can do this now, but we're on the walk we're not supposed to? You know, that possibly could help. Uh, the other thing would be have something to distract the dog uh, when it starts to chew on a leash. Some of the dogs would capitalize on the tug-of-war and, and think it's something they need to do all the time. Uh, I would say that if the dog is treats, uh, which I'll say treat-driven, that possibly treats uh, when you stop at the intersection would distract him uh, when you know when you're sitting standing there waiting to cross the street. Uh, certainly, something to distract him would would probably work as well as anything. And we see, you know, tug of war is okay, but in some dogs it. it uh, brings about an aggressive behavior, and so you have to be careful with that. And I would imagine obedience training would certainly cover something like uh, how the dog performs on a leash. Absolutely, and it sounds like the dog does pretty well based on the email, and uh, you know when they're walking and this sort of thing. But it does need the basics: sit, stay, come. These are all things, and certainly if you were to get loose at an intersection, as the uh, person that sent the email said, you know, certainly you don't have to be chasing the dog and endangering the dog and or yourself uh, as it goes into the streets. So obedience training, as you mentioned, is a great thing to do. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got an early caller on the line, so we say good morning to Todd, who's on the road today. Good morning, Todd. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, it's a beautiful morning this morning, but uh, I've got a question about I've got some chickens, and I've got a, probably about 12 of them, and they've all got different nests, and they lay, maybe two or three of them laying in the same nest right there. And when they're laying there, sometimes they'll rake an egg out on the ground and then peck it and eat the shell. Now, for them to do that, are they missing something in their diet? to make them eat the shell? You know, certainly that's a great question, and having had chickens over the years, none now, I would suggest that you do need to feed a supplement that has either oyster shell or some source of uh, calcium in it. Uh, they may be craving that. Uh, it's not unusual for eggs to lay, chickens to lay eggs in the same nest. Uh, I don't know if they're getting too many eggs in there and then kicking it out or if they are actually craving uh, mineral supplementation. But they do have uh, basically a supplement that you can give the chickens that should help with the problem of uh, breaking the shell and eating it. Okay, because that's, that's what they're doing. They're, they're kicking the eggs out right there, and then they'll peck them until they bust them 
and then they'll right. eat the shell and leave the egg there. You know. Right. Yeah. And uh, I guess the other thing would be to, uh, as often as possible, take eggs out of the box, out of the nest, uh, which would help where you wouldn't have too many eggs there. So right. uh, I think the supplement would be the first thing I would try and see if that okay. helps. Is there anything okay. that you recommend? Uh, your feed store or where you get your uh, chicken feed should have some supplement. And when I said oyster shell, they actually have crushed oyster shell that they uh, used to feed, but it would be a mineral supplement that you would either add to their feed or feed separately. And I think that would be a good idea. Well, just very good. Yes. Yeah. No, just to ask where you, where you get your food, and they should be able to help you with that. Okay. Thank you a lot, and I enjoy your show, and you're very informative. Thank you a lot. Thanks, Todd. Good to hear from you this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. At the top of the show, visiting with uh, our veterinarian, Dr. Troy Major. Uh, Dr. Major, would the extension service uh, be a good resource for uh, for people who have, uh, you know, chickens and other kind of non-traditional pets, I guess? Always a great source, and they do have... Uh, I'm sure brochures that would help uh, as far as uh, the chickens are concerned, as far as care, uh, what uh, medications that you might need if they were sick, and what foods to feed. That's a great suggestion. And uh, the uh, Extension Service does a great job, and uh, everything from information on everything from cattle, horses, uh, rabbits, uh, other small animals. And I think it would be a great source uh, to get information from. Let's get one more email in before our first break. And this one says, I have two male dogs. One is five years old and the other is a little over a year. They're both neutered. When they're inside the house, they're very loving and attentive to each other. But when I let them outside on occasion, they violently attack each other. They'll latch onto each other and even uh, even using the wheelbarrow method to separate them doesn't seem to work. I try not to let them out out at the same time. But I have three other dogs as well, so that's not always possible. Any advice for these two uh, angry dogs? You know, it's not an unusual situation to see dogs within a household uh, getting into fights. That's a little strange that it only happens when they go outside. It has to be a dominant thing, and of course, I'm not sure what type dogs these are. But if there's not any difference in size, it may be that the younger dog is trying to exert dominance over the older. I don't know the exact uh, circumstances around this, but uh, it may be one of those things that you do have to keep them separated. And again, I say it's strange that they don't get into that situation inside the house. Um, and this might be a crazy thought, and my, most of mine usually are. Could it be that inside they know they're being watched, so they're on their best behavior, and then when they're let outside to do on their own, they decide, hey, the teacher's not looking, let's get into mischief? <laughs> That's a great, great thought. Uh, actually, you know, the thing that the dog, I'm thinking in terms of two things. Number one, uh, the chief uh, uh, sources of jealousy that dogs have would be uh, petting one dog and not petting another. Uh, jealousy over food or dominance there. But this sounds more like a situation that uh, they get outside, they feel like, as you said, they can go at it. I'm not sure exactly why they don't fight inside. 
It may be because there are other dogs inside as well. It sounds like they had. She said they had three other, right? Three other dogs. So uh, I would seek uh, some counsel from a dog trainer, uh, someone who has experience in in working with dogs like that, and I think it would be a good idea. There are people available, I'm sure, in most every area. And Mississippi State actually has a behaviorist, uh, uh, animal behaviorist, that can work with you uh, if you contact them. All right. So uh, if you have a pet question, you can always call in on Thursday morning. But if uh, you come across something that, that during the week, you can always remember our email address. It's animals at mpbonline.org. And occasionally we'll ratch up a bunch and lock, let, let Dr. Major have a, a go at them. It's time for the first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll welcome back to the show our guest today, Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He'll update us about the salamanders found around Mississippi and other cold-blooded creatures. Dr. Major will stay on the line ready for your pet questions. To join the conversation, call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464 or email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. We're back on Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, and our guest for the hour is Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. To join our conversation this morning with a question or comment, the number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Let's get one other call in before we bring Tom into the program, and that is... um, Joe from Brookhaven. Good morning, Joe. You're on the air with us. Uh, have your radio turned down. Speak through the phone, please. Joe, are you with us? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Um, I wanted to just check on this. I see squirrels. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, we seen some. I got a friend that one of my friends that goes by his house. It's this family of squirrels. They like a little lighter brown. They're not more gray, but they're kind of brownish look. And the tails are like blonde. Bushy tails and light brown. Um, blonde, blonde, blonde. I mean, not like a gray squirrel tail. The tails are lighter than the squirrels. Okay. Um, any thoughts, Dr. Major, on what, what kind of squirrels those might be? We talked about fox squirrels last week. Uh, do you think that might be what uh, he's seeing? No, they're not fox squirrels. Okay. They're not okay. fox squirrels. All right. Strike one. Are they, are they, good, are they good size, same size as a no, regular squirrel? Yeah, they're about the same size as a regular squirrel, but they seem to be more leaner, more more longer. Okay, okay. Tom may be able to help us with that. Uh, isn't that nope. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I'm nope. not sure exactly. I'm not sure exactly what you're seeing. Uh, but if they're squirrels, I mean, I'm sure they're... That you may you may need to let the, some game wardens or whatever come over and look at them and see them because you know but, we sit in the door and watch for a while. Squir- a squirrel, gray, squir- gray squirrels do vary, and you do see some of reddish tails, and I'm sure some of that's genetic, and you may be, you may have a little family family anomaly here. I don't know, but they're real, like like blonde. Uh, Joe, yeah, is there I'd any way you to take a picture? Yeah, Joe, is there any way you could get a picture of it? You know what? I listen to the show all the time, and what I'll do, I'll get my friend and see if we can, you can get a picture of it. And if we do it, I'll email it to you or whatever. I'll try to email. <laughs> Yeah, we'd That's, appreciate that. That would be. Yes. I've been hunting squirrels all my life. I'm 62 years old, and I've never seen it. You never seen it. Huh. 
Well, hey, we're anxious then. See if yeah. your friend can get a picture. And if you do, uh, email it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll see if we can't uh, figure something out for you. Yeah, like I told him, I said, maybe we need to record this. Yep. For some uh, state officials. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, Wildlife Fisheries and Parks, uh, Mississippi Department of Wildlife Fisheries and Parks would probably be your best bet there, and uh, maybe start there and, and see uh, what the assistance they might be able to give you. All right, uh, Joe, thanks for the call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with our guest for the hour, Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So, uh, Tom, tell us, we mentioned Bucket Brigade in the opener, and uh, folks who might have heard your visit before are familiar with that, but for people who maybe have not uh, heard you before, what exactly is going on during the Bucket Brigade? I'm not exactly sure now where I got that term. I don't think I invented it for salamanders. I think historically might have been a queue of folks lined up passing water buckets to put out a fire. That's not what we do. Uh, each of the folks that assist us, we walk um, not mainly not together, mainly along the road with a little plastic scoop. As we encounter a um, salamander in need of getting off the road, we put it, we herd it into the scoop and take it off the road in the direction of its travel. If I have time, I get a photograph. But that's the bucket brigade. Some nights on a busy night with um, either of the three species we're talking about today, either Webster's or Spots or Marbles, we may move several hundred, sometimes 500 in a night. Um, if I don't have much assistance, we lose a lot of those to traffic. So that's our, that's our bucket brigade. And so this is the time of year for the bucket brigade? Yes. This is uh, with the species we work with at the Trace, and these do move elsewhere. But I, I can't think of any of the spots right now in Mississippi where Webster's crossroads. Um, but uh, spots probably crossroads. Spotted salamanders and marble salamanders probably crossroads in lots of spaces, uh, places and probably just get run over. We have a permit from the Natchez Trace folks. Uh, Diana Bench has been great over the years with this to to intercept them and move them off the road safely without um, interfering with traffic. Although the little magic switch I have allows me to slow the speed limit supposedly, hypothetically, to 35 miles per hour. Uh, on the trace on wet nights. So if that light's blinking, you're supposed to be driving no faster than 35 miles per hour. Uh, that's, to, that's to protect the um, the brigade, not the salamanders. Mainly people can't see those. But this is the season. This is the season. Right now, in fact, we uh, someone mentioned, I think it was Dr. Major mentioned wet weather. We've not had wet weather mainly in the Clinton area where I live. The ground is dry beneath the sometimes wet leaf litter, and the animals have not come up to move yet. But we, with the next good rain, we expect to see marble salamanders moving to breeding basins. And within a month of eh, five weeks, maybe from now, we expect to see the first Websters emerging from their subterranean retreats and heading out. So, so again, the three uh, salamanders we're talking about primarily here today would be the Webster salamander, the spotted salamander, and the marbled salamander? Correct. And marbles and spots, are, they're not everywhere, but they're, they're common. They're more or less statewide. Websters are not. They're rare. And so uh, give us an idea of size on the salamanders. Okay. Uh, listening audience, <laughs> Websters are about three inches long. An adult Webster salamander is about three inches long. Uh, when I, I do, I photograph each one. We catch them. We carry them across the road, and, we, um, and I, I can fit half a dozen to and on a bad night, maybe 10 into a little CD case in which I do my photo ops. Marble salamanders are a little bit bigger, maybe as long as your finger, a little bit longer than that, maybe a little bit larger around. And spots are about as long as my hand. They vary, but they're about as long as my hand. So if that helps, um, mm -hmm. they're, they're both heavier set. The Websters are slim. 
So on the Bucket Brigade, you're helping the salamanders get across the, the Natchez Trace. So where are they headed to? Okay, uh, they're headed to different spots. The Websters actually were thought not to be migratory until my wife, uh, recently retired, Dr. Deborah Mann at Millsaps, and I, we, we were intercepting them in the road as we assisted, as we looked for uh, spotted salamanders, and it looked like they were directional, but the literature said they don't move. They're not migratory. But these look pretty darn directional. Within a couple of years, we'd established they are migratory, and contrary to uh, the literature at the time. Um, and what they're doing is they, they live underground uh, year-round, uh, depending on where you are, in, uh, in some sort of rocky uh, uh, crevices. If the trace, it's limestone. It could be siltstone, sandstone, uh, ironstone elsewhere. But the trace is limestone, Glendon limestone. They spent all. They spent six months of the warm season underground, not eating. The females have um, laid eggs. They're guarding the kids, but no one's eating. They're getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. They emerge around Halloween, uh, head topside, and disperse from the rock outcrops, eating ants and termites and columbulans and the miscellaneous small earthworm things like that on the way out. But they're dis- dispersing mainly to avail themselves of more food resources at this spot. At the trace, the eye crop is 80, about 80 yards from the road. When they reach the road, those are heading that direction, reach the road, they try to cross the road, and then go maybe another 50 or 70 or whatever yards. Um, so those are dispersing for food resources. And then they, three or four months later, they return and go back underground. The um, spots and marble salamanders are going to breeding sites. They're terrestrial animals that are going to breeding sites because the, the juveniles are aquatic for a couple of months. So... Two different explanations for the road crossing. Uh, um, you know, you've got some great photographs here um, up close, and obviously you've got to get up close with these little tiny creatures. But maybe if you would just spend a couple of minutes on, are there any tips if someone is interested in nature photography and trying to get good <laughs> photographs of, of small things? I think maybe the key is, just, well, you have to be in the right space. Uh, Kevin is right now looking at one I have. Uh, folks have called in before. They confuse They confuse. People, some people, people confuse salamanders and and uh, lizards. We have a picture of an anole here uh, with a salamander draped across its back. The anole is perched atop one of our silt fences on a winter night. On a winter night, they're not feeding. They come up topside, we think, to warm up when the ground is cooler than the air is, often during a rain. So this this lizard, this is an anole, a small anole on top of the fence, has uh, raindrops on it. And on its back, crossing its back, is a Webster salamander. Much, much, much smaller. In no danger of being eaten. The lizard is not in the eating mode. And it, it's probably woken up wondering what's crossing its back. And the salamander is crossing the fence, looking across the road, about to jump from the, the lizard's back. Um, but to get this photograph, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. And this is a one in me. <laughs> I, no one else has ever seen this, I'm imagining. Uh, this is neat. I'm using a little uh, Olympus Tough camera. This is no ad for it, but it, it worked with the swimming of the Galapagos to get sea turtle pictures, and it works at the trace on wet nights in the winter. But you really have to have a steady hand. The light's got to be about right. I do not use a cell phone for this. It's a it's a great picture because you're right. It's the, the, the salamanders crawling over the top the, of the and, – and it's kind of like – you're right. He's, he wakes up and it's like, what is that crawling over the top This picture is worth a thousand words. Um, <laughs> Um, so uh, you mentioned um, emerging too, and I guess uh, so. The, is it the Webster salamander that is uh, uh, that lives under the ground? Websters are real skinny, slim. They live underground, and the, one reason they're skinny is they are lungless. And we've been through this before. Maybe what's the advantage of being lungless? One thing is you're not going to choke to death. 
Uh, you don't have an earthworm or a, or a grub or something blocking your breathing ways. You can breathe through your moist skin. So, And you don't spend energy on moving a diaphragm. Uh, you can live in tiny spaces without having to, to, uh, to move that diaphragm. So they can, uh, but the downside is you've got to stay moist. And these are not aquatic animals; these are terrestrial animals. But they underground; they're underground right now because underground is still damp if you're deep enough in a rock crevice. And they'll emerge in the winter when things don't evaporate as fast, when they can keep that skin wet in the leaf litter, and go out to forage and mate and things like that. But this is our most abundant salamanders. Are the um, we have roughly thirty species. And uh, seven different families. Then the biggest, the most speciose family is the Plethodontidae, the lungless salamanders, of which Webster's is one. The other two have lungs. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's time for a break. When we get back, we'll continue talking salamanders with our guest Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Major is also ready for your pet questions. So if you want to join the conversation this morning, call us at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org Back with more, so stay tuned. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with uh, Dr. Troy Major and our guest for the hour, Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you want to join the conversation with a question or a comment, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Tom, how long has the Bucket Brigade been in existence? Since 2006, right after the Natchez Trace was connected, it was the north and southern legs were spliced through Clinton, at which point we anticipated more traffic, which equals more rotating vulcanized rubber, which equals more frog and salamander death on a wet night. And we were notified by the late Andy Graham that there was a spotted salamander crossing just south of I-20. on the. So we we started there. And a few years later, we moved farther south, and that's when we found the Webster's crossing road, and that's a whole other story. So, And you had a point about, I think, about the, the moisture that you wanted uh, the to se- you know, The seasonality. So the, uh, the marble salamanders, which will move probably the next time it rains much, it finally gets our dry ground wet, they'll come up and move across the road to their breeding basin, and this is going to be what will become an ephemeral pool. That's a pool the last part of the year, and it's usually there. It's usually wet and holding water in the winter. Late uh, in the winter and spring, um, they're going to breed on land there. The females will lay their eggs beneath a... Uh, a limb or a crawfish burrow or something, and guard those until it rains. She may be there for months until it rains again. As soon as it rains, she's terrestrial. She's going to leave the kids hatch uh, with gills and their larval for a couple of months, and they leave. The Her con- congener, the big, bigger spotted salamander, will move uh, starting Christmas, early January, to the same spot, which will by then be flooded. And that animal lays its eggs, and they breed in the water. They have swimming tails. They have a nice courtship uh, ritual. And uh, they will head to this ponds, just like the marble salamanders, salamanders will. But in a couple of weeks, they will head to the same ponds in the same direction from the same forest 
again, starting around Christmas. But the other thing you're saying, so eventually when they cross one way, they they've got to go, go back. back the other way. So the males will stay in place for a while to meet new females. The females, as soon as they've laid eggs, will either, in the case of marbled, stay to guard them, or in the case of the spots, they head back over. So we, we have an extended season <laughs> uh, intercepting animals. And then later, several months later, the, the eggs hatch, um, uh, the larvae absorb their gills and head up to the uplands. They're going to become terrestrial like the adults too. And we pick those up sometimes by the hundreds um, in rainfall and move them across the road. So, again, these are too small for really a motorist to see. I would recommend anyone not driving that trace, not driving that stretch on a wet night if you can avoid it. And if you can't, drive slowly. (laughs) Got a caller to get to. Let's uh, invite Robert, who's called in from Vicksburg today. Good morning, Robert. You're on the air with us. Hi, I uh, appreciate you taking my car. I uh, listen to the show all the time. Avid listener. Thank you. I was just just wanted to comment about the earlier caller. I, I work uh, been working for several years with wildlife, uh, especially out west, in some of the bigger national parks. But I was wondering if he might have saw a long tailed weasel. It's kind of a lean, kind of looks like a squirrel, but they own in Mississippi as well. Hmm. A long-tailed weasel. All right. Uh, thanks, Robert. We will add that uh, to the discussion again. Hopefully our friend Joe from Bookhaven can get a, a picture, and then we'll all know what it is. But that uh, sounds like it could be a, a, a possibility. So uh, this is Creature Comforts. We're visiting today with Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We've been talking about the salamanders that he studies and uh, efforts uh, by Tom and some other folks uh, to help the salamanders across the Natchez Trace uh, this time of year. So, uh, Tom, you mentioned your picture of the of the salamander crossing over the lizard. They're both on the fence, and you also have a great shot of this fencing that goes along the Natchez Trace. What's the purpose of the fence? Okay, the fences were set up too. This this is again my wife and I, uh, Dr. Mann, uh, studying the, the or documenting, proving, demonstrating the um, the uh, migratory behavior of Webster salamanders. We don't have the fence set up for the marbles or the spots, but they, we, it catches those as well. We, the intention was to, um, for the fences along, set up along, there are 90-yard fences set up along both sides of the trace, just north of that power line quarter near milepost 86.1, if you're heading toward Clinton. Um, the intention was to intercept the salamanders and then turn them laterally into little not pitfall traps into little um, traps we'd arrange. They could crawl into those, and we would we would intercept them that way. Well, the first night that we set the fences up near the outcrop, and we have a 30-yard fence there, I picked up 500 animals, and maybe it was the second night, in, half, in, in four or five hours. The traps that I set up then caught three. We had no idea they were going to cross the fence like this in numbers, so we abandoned all that. And what we tried to do was walk the fence at 10 or 15-minute intervals while we're out there, and scoop animals up, note the panel number, write everything down. Someone runs the animals to me. I take pictures. We carry them across the road at the same spot on the far side and let them release them on the far side. If we're lucky, we see, see the same animals again in, in three to four months and uh, wish them a happy summer. So they're, they're, in the fall, they're going to emerge skinny, very, very slim, very skinny, emaciated looking, and they'll come back fat, uh, females full of eggs and, the, um, and ready to head back underground in Late February and March mainly. So, but the fences are—you can see the fences along the road right now. So the the original thing of kind of the trap didn't work, but does it help? Th- sort of 
give them are they easier to see oh they're easier well it slows them up a little bit you can't it's it would not be safe to try to intercept and deal with 400 animals crossing uh the trace uh on a wet night you can't the hard earthworm size are hard to see actually it's smaller than a larger earthworm it's just so we pick them up before they're trapped before traffic is a hazard to them or because before we become a hazard in the road to traffic so we pick them up on the fence and do and because they, they can't climb the fence fast. They climb it, but not that fast. Uh, they come straight up, and we have vol- our, either ourselves or volunteers to run down the fence and bring them. Some, on a busy night, I'll have, oh, five or ten, maybe 15 scoops along the uh, bank of the um, road there with me kneeling, taking pictures and sending them and sending the animals, courtesy of other volunteers, back to the far side of the road. So it's it's uh Long nights, but we usually work just the first three to four hours of night. After ten or eleven o'clock, usually traffic abates somewhat, and they can cross on their own and climb the fence on the far side and get to the woods. That's the idea. We've got a call around the line on creature comforts. <coughs> it's uh, Rachel, who's called in from Eupora today. Good morning, Rachel. You're on the air with us. Hi. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I was wondering if Tom Mann, Doctor Tom Mann, has written any books on lizards and salamanders, or if he can recommend uh, some. I'm very interested in anoles and uh, salamanders, too. This this is Master Man, not Dr. Man. Dr. Man is my wife. We have written several articles, on uh, published articles on Webster salamanders, not on anoles. And you can find those on, if you Google... If you Google Webster salamander, that's like the dictionary uh, Webster's Webster salamander migration. Okay. Um, okay. And put in man and man, you should get it. If you don't call okay. me, call me at the right. museum. Call me at the museum, and I can get you something. But that's that describes what's going what's going on at the trace, and that something similar to that is going on everywhere else. These guys occur, but no one's seen it except for my boss, Dr. Nicole Hodges, and her major professor at um, MSU who put a fence up at Legion State Park on my suggestion and documented the same sort of thing, which is neat. Uh-huh. Can you give me that phone number? Oh, uh, try uh, 576 Yes, ma'am. And okay. I have, I've written nothing on lizards. Uh, but this is a nice photograph. Okay. I, I sent you the photograph. <laughs> All right. Yes, that would be great if you could... Uh, publish some photographs and uh, some uh, content with it. That would be wonderful. All right, Rachel. Uh, Thanks for calling in today. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Good to hear from you. Uh, Let's stay on the phone lines here. I think we've got next Jerry in Madison. Hi, Jerry. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, I had a question uh, for Mr. Mann. If he could uh, speak towards uh, the large river salamanders up in Arkansas, the hellbenders, I believe the name, and if we have anything comparable to that down here in Mississippi. We have and, we have that species on our endangered species list. Um, it's been there since 2011. It's found only in Bear Creek in Mississippi, and it probably is not doing well. Uh, the water is murkier there, than, murkier, cloudier, siltier there than it is at most uh, hellbender sites. Uh, this year it ran deep. Dr. Will Selman intended to do some survey work on those this summer at um, Tishomingo State Park, and it was just too, the water was too high. It didn't work out well, but we do have, I have, I've seen one. <laughs> that's, that's it in a survey back in 2015. 
Uh, we are very interested in its its status here. So we do have them. Okay, so so it's an endangered species. Yes, sir. Is there any work, is it any work done towards trying to, you know, cap, you know, dig the eggs and well, you know, the, the first thing we need, the first thing we know, but the first thing we need to know is as that's need to refine our notion of its status. I mean, are there our tendency, we, we think we know now is that it's top heavy with adults. We need to see more evident recruitment. If we're not, if we aren't getting that, then we need to, as you suggest, probably figure out a way to augment that. So thanks for that. That okay. was a good question. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Jerry. Good to hear from you. We've got some open phone lines on creature comforts. If you have a question for our guest, Tom Mann, or a pet question, or if you'd like to share a recent wildlife experience, give us a call. The number's one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. So, Tom, how, I mean, up, up close when you're walking the fence line, I, I guess these things are are fairly easy to see. I mean... Give us sort of an idea of what the experience is like doing the bucket brigade. It's all right. So it's always on a wet night. Now the as I've um, the marble salamanders and the spots are moving. Uh, we're mainly hitting those along the road, and that's mainly during rain or intermittent rain. They prefer to move when the road's wet. They're not going to move across a dry road, but they'd really rather move when it's actually precipitating. Websters just want wet leaves. That's all they want. They move on a on a moonlit night but they want a wet leaf litter. So we have a longer season for those guys, um, more nights than when they might be moving. We just walk slowly along the fence with a headlamp and sometimes a uh, uh, bright uh, hand light. And uh, you got to look carefully because they're small. They are small. I've got one other nice picture I didn't bring in here of one uh, halfway up the fence, and there's a great big wolf spider uh, looking toward it, aiming down, and the the salamander's looking back, like maybe I should go another way. We've never <laughs> seen a spider hit one. They could, I suppose, but we've never seen that. Well, I, wa- I saw one fall into a black widow web one time, and I got it out. It was like Gulliver with the Lilliputians, but uh, whether the spider would have done anything, I don't know. Um, How do the salamanders react, or do they? I mean, do they try to squirm away? You know, at first, the off, it depends on the temperature. The warmer it is, the harder they are to contain. Again, I'm hurting these into the same. I don't grab them. I'm putting. I'm hurting these or flicking them into the same plastic uh, quart-sized scoops we use. Putting a cap on that, and taking it while I'm doing my photo ops. Um, uh, on a cool, on a cold, on a marginal night, it's wet enough to move, but it's pretty cool. Sometimes I'll jump on the fence and. and and coil up at the base, sometimes upside down. However, they fell, they're just coiled up and just just hoping they weren't seen. Flick them into the scoop and move on. But they can be very very evasive on a warmer night. Now, we use this again. This is this is fall, winter, and, and early spring, so it's pretty cool. But they're these are fast little animals. If they once they hit if they're if they're in running mode when they hit the leaf litter, we don't even bother trying to catch them because they're going to be they know what they're doing. Sometimes I try not to lose. I, I do my photography on the non-forested side of our little fence, along between the fence and the road. So I have to be very careful not to lose one there because then it's going to continue its direction and make it run over. So, and, But once they hit the leaf litter, they're gone. So we're um, so, they're fast. It, it sounds like you've got your, your method down, but it does it is, seems rather labor-intensive. Um, have other... Uh, solutions been tried, maybe digging a tunnel underneath the roadway where the, the animals are trying to cross? There is a famous spotted salamander um, tunnel in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I have talked to the people that, that monitor that, and I'm told it's not a, it does work somewhat. It's not as efficient uh, as 
one would hope. Uh, there are a lot of animals across elsewhere getting run over. Um, for a ton, all right, you have to visualize. The listeners have to visualize this. These animals are mainly either beneath the leaf litter or beneath the ground uh, during the daytime and mainly all year long. They come topside to gain so they can move fast to get from desired point A to, to or, or from origin point A to their goal B. So they're not coming on, they're not, they're not looking to be safe. They're looking to get from point A to point B as rapidly as they can. That's why they're on top. So they're not inclined to go back into a hole uh, where they can't see the sky, they can't. It's not raining on them to um, to be safe because they're not thinking about being safe. They're just thinking about going from point A to point B fast. So a tunnel alone won't do. A tunnel with a grate that allows lightning and rainfall can work, but then you've got to funnel animals into that. It's got to be a fairly broad, uh, depending on how broad your swath of uh, of animal active road is. In our case, it's, it's it's about a mile for both the Spots Marbles and the Websters. There's a lot of road that needs to be fit with something like that. You need interceptor panels to guide them into a tunnel built at the road surface with a grate. Um, that's This is the current state of the art. Mar- uh, the Websters are great climbers, so intercepting one and, getting, getting, and inducing it to go toward a grate is another issue because uh, they are really, really good climbers. But as you said, they're trying to get from point A to point B, and they might not necessarily want to go down to where the tunnel is. No, exactly, exactly. All right, it is time for another break, uh, the last break of the hour. When we come back, we'll wrap things up with our guest today, Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Major still on the line, ready for any pet questions that you might have. Time to work in a phone call. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the show after this. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and our guest of the hour, Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Still time to work in a phone call if you're quick about it at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, so, Tom, if, if, do you need more volunteers? And if someone's listening and is interested, can they become a member of the Bucket Brigade? Uh, sure. Uh, again, I work under permit to the National Trace. I need to, I would need a name and some notion of expertise. Um, and again, it's it's wet out there. It's it's often cool. I mean, be cold and wet. Um, and they, I think we already released the phone number one time. I can do it again. Um, Go ahead. Six zero one five seven six six zero four eight. We don't need too many people, but I need more than me and my wife on a wet night. Uh, Dr. Um, Charles Sherwood has been just—he heard—he heard me on this show three or four years ago, and he was—he's been so important to us. He's moved at least temporarily to Colorado. We've had volunteers from other folks from the museum. Uh, we've had folks from the zoo. Uh, last year, uh, Charles helped a little bit, and we also had uh, Colleen Gregg. Uh, she volunteered. Was very helpful. We had a, a former Millsap student, um, Lindsey Stringer, was helpful. But we need a couple of. <laughs> otherwise, the body count goes up. We really need we need folks that can help us safely um, do this. So, so what is it about this specific spot on the Natchez Trace that uh, is important? Why is it such a a, a crossing point? Okay, the uh, actually there are lots of places like this 
that are just are unmonitored uh, for the more common marbled and um, and um, spotted sail meadows. Not so for the Websters. Websters are tied to rock high crops, which are basically kind of scarce in Mississippi. They've been at this site for uh, the species was only first described in the state in the late fifties, early sixties. It was. But they were here before the Natchez Trace, the, the the new, the modern Natchez Trace went in there. The old Trace, I think, didn't go through with this site anyway. But the new Trace went in in the late 60s. These guys were here, and gals, were here long before that. They were probably here. Again, they're tied to that rock because it gives them refuge in our hot summers. And they've probably been tied to rock if there are two dozen spots in the in Mississippi since the Ice Ages, probably 10,000 years ago. Think about that. Before our most of our ancestors came across some boats uh, from the old world, wooden boats, more with, it, with notions of um, deeds and things like that. These guys lived here in the forest at that time and, and did something like what we're seeing right now. They dispersed in the in the winter and then and mated and then returned again for the summer. And they but we as our we have not codified any ownership rights for critters or plants here. But they need to think about that. They've been doing this for a long before there was a Clinton. These guys were coming out of those rocks at this site and dispersing seasonally uh, uh, as they do. So I like uh, folks need to think about that. This is this this is a special thing. But there are other creatures that do this too. We need to. They have every bit as tied to the landscape as we do, but they don't buy it. Uh, let's uh, get a phone call in before the hour gets away from us. Carol is in Pascagoula. Good morning, Carol. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I have a rabbit question. Okay. A pet rabbit. We have a, a rather, I suppose, elderly bunny. Um, we think he's about 11. He lives in the town something around the parking lot of the Maybe about a year old. Anyway, um, are there any sort of Dr. Major, it's, she hard to look, uh, understand what Carol was saying, but she says she has an old rabbit as a pet, and she's wondering if there are any supplements uh, that she could, sh- should or could uh, feed to the rabbit that might help its health. You know, that's certainly... She's got 11 years old, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's on up there. I've known one other rabbit that uh, made it that long, and rabbit was doing well. This lady uh, supplemented with uh, everything from grapes to vegetables, along with the rabbit food, and a good quality uh, hay is good as well. Uh, good Timothy hay. Well, she's probably using this. Uh I would say that uh, as far as any other supplements, a varied diet probably is as good as anything. But, gosh, you can't uh, argue too much with success uh, with this rabbit at 11 years old. All right. Uh, Tom, as we wrap things up, uh, what about someone who's uh, maybe you piqued their interest about salamanders, uh, the type that we've been talking about and other kinds? Is there an online resource uh, that might be helpful to them? Ooh. <laughs> I don't live online. That's, you know, you could. I, I didn't say this earlier. Again, we do this bucket brigade. We call it for all these species, including spotted salamanders. These are done along the eastern seaboard in lots of states, mainly more more than northeast and not. And we're actually, I didn't mention this either. We're the first ones each year to report the New Year's start of uh, moving, uh, migrating 
to breeding ponds, uh, spotted salamanders, which is neat. There's a site in Connecticut, uh, the Yukon, um, Yukon, uh, shoot, I uh, can't think of the um, website right now, but it's the U- University of Connecticut monitors or keeps tabs on all these things, including ours, and the, they get reports from these. That might be a useful site as well. But there are, uh, they close roads up north. It's, all, it's just an array of different uh, responses to these to these migration events, and we're the we're one of the southernmost, if not the southernmost, which is kind of neat. So we're the first. We're the first. When folks are getting, they're he- they're having breeding animals heading to the ponds after the snows melted. We're getting little guys coming up and heading to the uplands. So, all right, that'll wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners like you. To find a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major and our guest Tom Mann, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.